We'll pick up where we left off uh, last Lord's Day. Uh, find ourselves in Acts 25, where we'll look at the first 12 verses this morning. And before I begin, let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. We thank you for the salvation that has been gifted to us, the fellowship that we share together through your eternal almighty word. And, uh, for not only this time, but the time we'll share um, later this morning as the body arrives to celebrate together, to worship together. Pray that you, Holy Spirit, would uh, enlighten us to the truth before us, however that may be applicable to our own lives, I'm not missing the, the historical reality and facts um, of this narrative, as well as uh, the narrative to be taught later this morning. Bless us, we pray, Lord, that your name would be honored and blessed among us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 25. Now, three days after Festus have arrived, had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning to ambush, to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Well, <clears throat> we've been in Acts for about a year, and it's very fast-paced narrative, you know, to say the least, um, until these last chapters. And it slows way down <clears throat> as uh, Paul is on trial. So here we are witnessing the last years of Paul's life, uh, which were spent as a prisoner a prisoner first in Jerusalem, although he had done nothing wrong, and then a prisoner in Caesarea to avoid being assassinated. And then, of course, um, he'll languish here for two years, um, waiting for Felix to, to settle his case. 
And then, of course, he'll become a prisoner in Rome until he is beheaded. So he's opposed by false accusations um, of the Jews and uh, under a Roman guard. What attention. And, you know, you can't help but to wonder why it is that chapters 21 to 28, you know, highlight so strongly the defenses of Paul time and time again. The various judgment seats of men before which he stands. We've read the accusations three times. We've read his defense three times. And we read it yet again here in chapter 25 as the Holy Spirit leads us into this section. And then Paul will be led before this next governor of Judea by the name of Festus as he gives his defense again, and then he'll stand before Agrippa and so on. We see it again and again. So why all of this attention on this trial? Well, I think it's important that we, we remember that early Christians were accused of being criminals. They were criminals, people who did unjust and evil things who ought to be locked up. That's exactly, I mean, humanly speaking, humanly speaking, uh, that's exactly what their Lord was accused of. This is what our Lord, humanly speaking, was crucified, the reason he was crucified, the false accusations of the Sanhedrin, the most religious people of the day. And then through the washed hands, if you will, of a a Roman procurator, another Roman governor by the name of Pilate, a miscarriage of justice to the Lord and for many years thereafter, a miscarriage of justice to the Lord's people. Nowhere emphasized more brilliantly through the life of Paul. So Paul is charged here. Um, Luke tells us time and time again he's innocent. And if we think about this, we, we, we mustn't forget, if we haven't thought about this, that historically the greatest persecutors of Christianity have been religious groups. They always wear the mask of religion. Whether it's Judaism, which is no less pagan than any other religion outside of the one true Christ. It's a pagan religion. Don't look at Judaism and say, those are God's people. Amen? God's people are those who are in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have Muslims who kill their own mother, brother, sister, if they profess Jesus Christ. So it's always in the form of a religious mask that is the cover for persecution. Now, Christians can get whack as well, right? Not Christians, so-called Christians, so-called Christians, so-called. 1999, you remember the name Paul Hill, who would go and, you know, kill abortionists and blow up abortion clinics, and he, he killed this doctor who performed abortions and his escort and his escort's wife, He was eventually executed in 2003, and he believed that he'd be remembered as a martyr. 
And he claimed to be serving God. He claimed to be doing what the Lord Jesus Christ would have him to do. And afterwards, he said in an interview, smiling, I wouldn't advise them to give me my shotgun back and let me go unless they wanted a similar outcome. He went on to say that that he would not rule out the use of chemical or biological weapons by anti-abortion activists, that it may be just to assassinate Supreme Court justices who support Roe versus Wade, that he held to what he called true Christian worship. And anyone who would disagree with his methods is in the service of Satan. So I guess you're in the service of Satan. And that abortion foes who share his views are ready to engage in more violence, end quote. That is anything but being of Christ. So as much wacko religions as there are in the world, there is also those who claim the name of Jesus Christ who are just as crazy. But again, it always, it always wears the mask of religion. That's the point, really. So here's Paul. He's in prison. And we know that he, the, he, he had certain freedoms, I mean, as far as uh, Caesarea went, where he was allowed um, visits, um, as well as he did in, home, in Rome when he was under house arrest. He could be visited by friends and family. That's, after all, how you would get your food and provisions. It's not like today. So here now, he's, he's in Caesarea. He's been there for two years. And now there's a change of guard. There's a change of leadership. Porcius Festus here replaces Marcus Antonius Felix. And according to Josephus, first century historian, he said this, because Felix had done such a terrible job, not just with Paul, but with the administration of affairs under his jurisdiction, he was recalled to Rome. And had it not been for the fact that his brother was a friend in Nero's court back in Rome, probably Felix would not have survived it. So needless to say, Festus was a welcomed successor uh, to Felix. And history records that he was an ambitious politician, but he actually died uh, within two years of office. And according to the providence of God, that was his plan. So this was a temporary administration. And Luke writes that once he took office, he wasted no time getting down to business, as we read here in Acts. So here he is. He's now replaced Felix. In verse 1, it says, Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. The number one thing on this guy's plate okay, the, 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 is the festering case against this apostle Paul. This case which Felix, if you remember, attempted to, to bribe Paul, left him locked up for two years without moving on the case. Just let it alone. He, remember he did, remember last time, he would call him to himself, trying to bribe him of money. Paul's not fallen prey to that. So here comes Festus. He hits the ground running. He goes into Jerusalem, realizing, by the way, that he's going to have to establish a working relationship with the high priest in the Sanhedrin. This governor, Roman governor, had to establish a relationship with these religious Jews. If not, governing Judea would become an even worse nightmare than it already was. So see, we, we see politics at work here. 
Always have, always will, until the Lord returns. <laughs> Amen. You can get all charged up watching your Fox News shows and CNN news shows and never forget who's in control. It doesn't matter who's in office or what the policies are, what the politics are. He's sovereign. Always has been, always will be. So you have all these opposing factions um, that are happening here. And these governors were, were somewhat paranoid of any uprising of the Jews under their jurisdiction. So, you know, he's trying to build a bridge here. And as a matter of fact, in just a few short years from this time, uh, these radical um, Judeans will attempt to fight against Rome. And we all know how that ended. Jerusalem was raised to the ground. The temple raised to the ground in 70 AD, just as Jesus said it would be. Who's in control? <laughs> so here then, a man who would uh, take on this uh, unenviable task travels to Jerusalem. Um, he's ready to govern. He's ready to govern. There's a new sheriff in town. He's wanting to take care of business. And then here comes these vicious accusers of Paul. They appear almost immediately on the scene to press their agenda. You know what? This is the case with most men, most people who take on a leadership position. They take on a new leadership position. And the ones who most often, not always, but most often come to you first wanting a meeting are usually the ones you'll have the most trouble with down the road. They want to ingratiate themselves and get their complaint in before you get too busy with your business. So is the case here. They want to lay their case down before this new leader gets moving. In verse 2, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So here again, this corrupt religious system of the day. They have no contact with God. The only contact they have is with Satan. So here the Sanhedrin court assembled in Jerusalem, Festus here is, is urged by this Jewish court to release Paul to their jurisdiction. And all this is is a revisitation of two years earlier. Remember the 40 radicals that came to the Sanhedrin? Okay, These 40 radicals are equivalent to what we know as people today who will strap bombs to themselves. Remember they went on a hunger strike. They said, we vow before God not to eat or drink until Paul is put to death. Which is to say, may the curses of God come upon our head if we eat or drink before Paul is dead. So two years later now, um, they're up to the same shenanigans. Not the 40 fanatical zealots, but the Sanhedrin themselves. They're, they're carrying out the, the hopes anyway of, of this plot. They're designing the ambush. And the reason is, is they probably abandoned all hope that Paul would ever be found guilty in a Roman court. 
So they want to take it into their own hands. So verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Now remember again, God himself, Jesus himself, promised Paul that he would preach in Rome. Remember the night before before he was assaulted? Jesus said, you will preach, you will give testimony of me in Rome. Okay, now it's two years later. He's waiting. (laughs) I mean, why is it? Okay, think about it. Why did God, we talked about this Thursday night, why did God allow his most effective instrument for, for preaching the gospel to the Gentile world, leave him languishing in Jewish custody for two years? Well, number one, it shows God is in no hurry. We might be tempted to see Paul as a victim of Jewish hatred or Roman bureaucracy. But from God's perspective, it's a, it's a much different matter. Amen? Always is. We learn from Acts, we learn from the epistles, that Paul was often chained to a Roman guard, or even two, for that matter. And remember, there's always a change of guard, which only would give Paul a greater opportunity to just preach the gospel to new meat. All the while trusting God, waiting for him to act. Great example, stellar example is Paul. Especially in our day, man. I, man, I have a hard time waiting. Anybody else? How do you do when it comes to waiting on God? Anxiety? <laughs> Overcome by anxiety? Disappointment? Or here's one. Anger. At God. For making me wait. I hope I don't get angry at God. But I think many of us can fall prey if we're put in a place like Paul. And few things probably test our patience or our faith more than being waste more than being you know forced to wait for something. And perhaps that's why our sovereign Lord places us in situations where we have no option but to wait. Fair enough? What does patience mean? Long what? Long suffering. To suffer long. Not pleasant. Prayers go unanswered or they seem to go unanswered. There's this weight, there's this burden, there's this struggle. Uh, We become emotionally involved. Um, whether it's physical, whether it's spiritual, whether it's emotional. And so it seems really heavy, and we're waiting, and we're praying, and we're waiting, and we're praying. It feels like it's going to crush us. And then instead of resting like Paul did, you know, we become anxious or angry. So here's Paul. And then in verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, that's Festus, he went down to Caesarea, And the next day, he took his seat in the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious accusations, many charges against him that they could not prove. Here again. 
So refusing to move the trial to Jerusalem, Festus convenes court back in Caesarea. So Luke provides, Luke's the author, and he, he provides a rather intimidating picture here. Now think about this. This phrase, stood around him, the group, the Sanhedrin, stood around him as he's brought before Festus. He's brought before the judge. It means to have a group standing around you, hurling lies at you. Imagine that pressure. So here's Paul's angry, hateful opponents presenting their lies. Paul stands there quietly. And there's no new accusations here, by the way. Just the same old litany of unproven, unsupported, trumped-up charges. And all these words, negative words. You know they say, what, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. It's not true. Not true. Right? You think back when you were a kid, you remember the moment on the school ground, or maybe one of your parents who said something, it's still in your head. Because words do hurt, and even for the Apostle Paul. But he doesn't revile back, just like his Lord. This is what Peter wrote. When he was reviled, he reviled not in a return. Hard to do. Only but by the Spirit and the grace of God. Especially if you're feisty. So verse 8. Paul argued in his defense. He said this. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Not reviling doesn't mean you don't defend yourself in truth. Amen? But Festus, wishing to do do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, This is great. Look at this response. I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Okay, now, he denies three main accusations against him here. The Jewish law, number one, offenses against the temple, number two, and Caesar, and the Roman law, number three. Okay, so these are the same charges brought against him earlier with a new twist. He throws Caesar and Roman law in there, which is really a brilliant move. Now, the Jews had jurisdiction over their law and the temple, but could do nothing with Roman law. Remember when Paul wrote to Rome? The Church of Rome, we just finished Romans not too long ago. Well, he wrote that letter back when he was in Macedonia, and at this point in time, about three years have passed. He's still longing to go to Rome. He says, I long to come to you and preach the gospel to you. He's still longing to go. And in in the 13th chapter of Romans, Paul made it very clear about his view under inspiration of the Holy Spirit regarding the state and civil magistrate, that the civil government, Paul writes, the civil government exists for the welfare of society. The civil magistrate is given power of the sword. Remember that? 
That is, the government has the right to administer lawful use of force in enforcing the law. They hold, they do not bear the sword in what? In vain. So he, here, he's upholding the integrity of the legal system, that of the Roman governing authority of his day. And that's why he says to Festus, Festus, look, if I've broken Roman law and I deserve to be punished, if I have broken a law that requires my head to be taken off, take off my head. I'm not trying to escape death if I'm guilty. And if you don't think the Bible, if you think the Bible teaches against capital punishment, think again. Think again. Here I stand, he says, as a Roman citizen. Verse 11, if then I'm a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Masterfully answers the accusations. Back in verse 9, you know, this is masterful after, after Festus. Verse 9, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? So Festus is either already vacillating, right? He doesn't know what to do. This is not the kind of judge you want to stand before, right? When he asks you what you would like done. <laughs> Paul knows he's innocent. He knows also more than that that what is clear. Remember? His conscience. He said numerous times, my conscience is clear. Because ultimately he knows he'll give an account to someone greater than Caesar. Much greater than the Sanhedrin. And he insists on his civil rights. I mean, how do you make a decision with both, when both options are really bad? They're nothing but bad. One option, go to Jerusalem and be tried by these religious Jewish hypocrites. They're criminals. Be found guilty, although you're 100% innocent. Or, second option, I can put myself in the hands of this local Roman governor who may just as well find me guilty because of the pressure of these Jews just to get him out of his hair. But then again, we have to ask, who's in control? Who's in control of the king's heart? God is, always. He ordains even the attitudes and actions of men to bring about his own ends. Always. People in America get all wound up about who's in office. It's not hard to do. And you hear their decisions and policies, right? But who's coordinated every U.S. presidential election? Easy answer, God. God. If you want to call it the judgment of God, then it's the judgment of God. But no decision is made outside of the sovereign framework of God. You know, we may wonder, we may sit in back and wonder why he does what he does, but it's no less true that he's the one who does it. In any misunderstanding, 
Any misunderstanding on our part can be simply chalked up to our ignorance. Not his lack of knowledge and wisdom, amen? Our lack. Because believers oftentimes get frazzled and worried. You know, you start seeing these political, when Christians, you know, pass around political uh, emails, you know, degrading this, or they're fearful of that. You know, anytime a Christian says, Christians ought to be in fear right now because of what's going on. Really? Really? God's running the whole thing. But it doesn't make men any less responsible for their decisions. Jesus stood before Pilate who was a governor, not unlike Felix, not unlike Festus. Jesus stands, actually, Jesus isn't standing before Pilate. Pilate's standing before him, actually. Pilate asks for some answers. Jesus refuses to answer. In John 19, Pilate said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, will you not speak to me? Do you Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? In other words, you are under my authority and I have power to do with you as I wish. Your fate is in my hands. Really. Jesus answered him. Verse 11, John 19. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. There you see the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. So Pilate, Pilate, Jesus says, look, you're not even in control of this situation. Pilate didn't know that before the foundation of the earth, Jesus would be crucified. In other words, your power is a delegated power. Not from Caesar, ultimately, but from God. Delegated power. Was was Nero, that evil Nero, as Caesar, was he in power outside of the framework of God's sovereign will? No. What about Hitler? No. What about Stalin? No. Christians start wringing their hands. It's not that we don't stand up like Diedrich Bonhoeffer even went as far as to go on a campaign to assassinate Hitler. I'm not saying it was right that he did that, but he still stood for the truth and he opposed the evils that were going on. He died for it. But he didn't sit quietly. Paul didn't sit quietly. You know, how did Joseph, we're, okay, we're, we're, we're in uh, Genesis during service, right? How did Joseph end up in Egypt again? Was it because his brother sold him off? Or was it because God said hundreds and hundreds of years earlier that he would go there? Both. <laughs> One was a means to his end. His brother selling him off was a means to his, his will. And his, his end, his purpose. And it was all in order to preserve the messianic line, which we'll see this morning. In an account that has nothing to do with Joseph at the moment. 
but his evil brother, Judah. So here then, two weeks on the job. It's two weeks on the job for Festus. And uh, Paul appeals to Caesar. This is a right that existed for, uh, in Roman law for anyone who was a Roman citizen. And remember, Paul was a citizen by way of birth. Many people purchased their Roman citizenship, usually by way of bribery, bribery of a higher up, someone higher up that they might have a relationship with. Paul was born a Roman citizen who was a Jew. So he appealed to Caesar as was his right as a citizen. So I think this is a great example for us. We should appeal to our rights as citizens as well, if need be. And it wasn't that Caesar would necessarily hear your case, but you could still appeal to Caesar. And I think when we, this is kind of like appealing to the Supreme Court in our time and day. When we think of Nero, we think of uh, dark imagery, Right? But during this time, this is what was referred to as the golden age of of Nero's rule and reign. So Paul's request is sensible at this point. He'll lose his head eventually because of Nero, and he cracks. He turns into a lunatic. Nero does. But he he appeals to him. And uh, Nero's uh, initial um, administration was, was regarded as somewhat more tolerant than it would be later. When he starts, you know, torching Christians and covering them with tar and impaling them and putting them in his garden to light his parties at night. This is before all that. Wouldn't have been wise to appeal to, to, to Caesar under those conditions. So They were granted certain protections, Roman citizens that is. And he appeals to Caesar. Um... But this, you see, think about Festus. He's the the new sheriff in town. This guy, Paul, has already appealed to Caesar. And news comes to him, Caesar. And this could cause this Festus to to appear as incompetent. Already he's on the job and someone's appealing to me. So think about that. All 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 these politics that are going on. Sending him, sending him off to Caesar would get him off his hands. It would get the, you know, the Sanhedrin off his hands, the pressure of these Jews. But it, it could cause the pressure of Caesar to come down upon him. Festus, that is. You know, many early Christians were accused. Paul's being accused. And Paul, I can see, is also of the Lord in his sovereignty and providence, um, causing Paul to go through all of this. After all, Jesus did say that I must show Paul the things he must what? Suffer for my name's sake. Nobody suffered more than this brother outside of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the name of Jesus Christ. And I think it was also used as an example to early Christians who did go on to suffer greatly and who would be accused of heinous crimes. Number one, they were often... um, Accused of of treason against Rome for refusing to bow before Caesar, saying Caesar is uh, God. They were accused of cannibalism, eating their babies. You know, when they heard about the Lord's table, this is my body and this is my blood, do this in remembrance of me, as a memorial to me. They were accused of cannibalism. They were accused of setting uh, Rome on fire. 
when it was probably Nero who did it. But accusations are made about God's people to this very day. So it serves as an example to us. You know, you're out of touch, number one. You Christians are out of touch. You're centuries behind the times. You're too rigid in your beliefs. It's okay to say you believe in Jesus, but don't believe or declare that he's the only way, right? There's pressure today. But God will ultimately destroy all such accusations. Listen to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 4. Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith. Paul will write this to the Thessalonian church. And faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evident of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And so grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Here it is. Inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, in his saints, and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Fret not. The day of vengeance is at hand. Vengeance is mine, Jesus said. I will what? I'll repay. I'll repay. God sees us as guiltless. Now, most of us won't stand as Paul did with accusations or the results of which are as fierce as this that he faced. But we do, face, uh, we do face a world whose value system is no doubt hostile to the standards of Christ. That's reality. All who choose to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer. So we're constantly being pressured to compromise, constantly pressured to deny the faith. So how do we, to wrap up, as weak, frail human beings of faith, how are we to stand against such pressure? That's the question. You know, when you hear from the world, you hear from the world, you know, you have to go along in order to to get along. Keep your faith at home. Don't bring it to work. Things like that. Three things is a reminder. I glean these from James Boyce, the late grace. The late great James Boyce. Number one, remember this. God is sovereign, granting us power to overcome by faith. As he brings them into our lives, even if things do not go right from a human point of view, it will still be right since God understood and ordained those hard circumstances from the beginning. That's number one. 
Number two, we need to know our Bible. We need to know our Bible. Not simply confessions, not simply church articles, but the word of God. Why? He goes on to say, there are many gray areas in life. The situations we face are generally not black or white. There's only one way to find your way through the gray, by studying, meditating on, and seeking to apply the Bible. The path is dark because the world is dark, but the word illumines the path. Okay? So number one, remember God is sovereign, granting us power to overcome. Number two, we need to know our Bible. Number three, you must be willing to pay any price necessary to stay true to Jesus Christ. There are times in history, voice goes on to say, when believers are told, bow down or die. Bow down or die. First century, bow down before Caesar, take a little pinch of incense, throw it in the fire, say Caesar's Lord, and you can go back to doing your thing. Just don't refuse to say Caesar's Lord. Christians refused. They died. Long before that, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow to the golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. That was a trial of fire. Okay, so there's three applications. And then finally, verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Now, humanly speaking, had Festus said, not guilty, think about this from a human perspective, had he said not guilty and and released him to the streets of Caesarea, they'd have killed him. They nearly killed him in the temple courts of Jerusalem. But instead, he will be escorted to Rome by way of armed guards. For the purposes of God. Providing his next preaching platform. In Rome. But not before he stands. Before yet another. Judgment seat of man. And that is. A guy by the name of King Agrippa. Which we'll look at next time. As Paul Harvey used to say. That's the way it is. Oh, is that Walter? What did what did he say, Paul Harvey? The rest of the-